Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us at tomballbible.church. Well, turn with me to Romans 5. We're going to finish our chapter this morning. We had to cut this chapter into bigger chunks because Paul had ideas that spanned more verses. Now, this morning, you may be coming across something that you have never really dealt with or had preached to you or taught to you before uh, from this text or any other text, and it's the idea of the original sin, of Adam's sin being imputed to us. Now, before we get into that, we got to look at a few of these things, is that why would Adam or why would Paul bring this idea up at all in this part of the argument as it flows through into here. So we've gotten to this point to where the person who's following along with Paul could be convinced of all that he's saying, that the righteous will live by faith, that faith in Christ alone is the only way to be saved, that that faith is secure, that I need it because I'm dead in my trespasses. But then the question could come after last week hearing this eternal security idea in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, you could ask this question, How is it that one man can pay for all sinners? How can one sacrifice go out to everybody else? And so there in in that thinking, Paul has to address the reality of who we are as sons and daughters of Adam. So we're going to look at that this morning, this concept of imputation of sin being put onto us. We've seen that in previous verses and chapters of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, being put onto us. But we're going to see the the first step of that imputation is Adam's sin being put onto us. Now, in the book of Romans up to this point, the word sin or trespasses or transgressions has only been mentioned in four and a half chapters 12 times. That's it. But in these 10 verses, he's going to mention that term 17 times. So this is what we're dealing with in this paragraph, this idea of sin. And we have to ask this question that we have, and you've probably asked it before, are all people born sinners? And mankind throughout history has hated that, that to be a born sinner, how can I be responsible for what something somebody else did? Something that somebody else did. How is that my fault? This is the concept of the doctrine of original sin. And what original sin is not is the first sin that ever happened in the garden. That's not original sin. Original sin is the concept that we are pervasively have a propensity to unrighteousness. That we have a pervasion for a propensity to unrighteousness. That's Adam's sin in the garden is imputed to me. And when that happens, I am through and through a sinner. And that's what we're going to be looking at, this idea that we are born dead in trespasses. An enlightened man hates this idea. In fact, in the era of history in Western civilization called the Enlightenment, this was the first doctrine to get the boot. Because it's just irrational. Why on earth would it make sense for something that somebody did millennia ago somehow be my fault? So that just doesn't make any sense. That's irrational. They, and they toss it out. The first doctrine to go because it doesn't make any sense. But what you have to deal with if you're going to do that is this. Adam did something and I don't want to deal with the consequences of it. So therefore, I reject that reality. But do you still say that you are a sinner in need of a savior? 
Because if you do, then that means that you can't have the, the fruits, the consequences of what Jesus did that you didn't do either. You didn't sin in the garden and you didn't die on the cross. So the biblical perspective is either you admit you don't need a savior at all, or you admit that you were born a sinner, that there is no in between. Either Adam's sin is imputed to us or I don't need a savior. If I don't want the fruits of what Adam did, then I can't have the fruits of what Jesus did on my behalf either. So Paul's going to make us level with that theology. And what we had to do, we had to start kind of like this to give us some tracks to run on because you'll see once we kind of get in these verses, it's easy to get lost. So we needed some clear tracks to run on on the front end. Also, I wanted to let everybody know and point out at the beginning of this section of what is Paul grounding his argument in? Paul is grounding his argument in this whole idea and ultimately our salvation in the concept of a literal Adam. That Adam from Genesis was a real man in real time and in real space. Now, many of you are going like, well, duh, duh, of course. Yeah, of course. That. Why would you even have to mention that? I mention it because I'm sure there's plenty of people in this room who reject the idea of there being a literal Adam that Genesis 1 through 3, really 1 through 11, is just kind of fable or parable or poetry. It's not actually one human being man and one human being woman in a garden. It's just kind of symbolic. In fact, I had a seminary professor who believed that. He taught Old Testament, and he said, you know, he concurred with secular science that what we call Adam was probably a tribe of hominids that finally got up the chain for evolution, and then that is the Adam that's talked about here in the Old Testament. He really taught that. I'm so thankful that I didn't primarily go to seminary to get educated. I just went there to get credentialed. Because not everybody in seminary believes in the inerrancy, the infallibility of Scripture, or the literal Genesis 1 through 11. That's, we, we have to hinge our argument of salvation on a literal Adam because Paul hinges his argument of salvation on a literal Adam. And here's how we know why. Because 10 times in these verses, Paul's going to use the phrase one man. And when he says one man to Jesus, we're not saying, well, Jesus was a tribe of people that lived and there was like 50 crosses on that hill that all died for us. No, we insist that that is one man named Jesus. And if that's going to be true, then Paul draws a one-to-one correlation to Adam in Genesis 1 through 3. So we have to hold to a one man. If we lose Adam, then our salvation goes out the window. That's what Paul's going to say here in chapter 5 of Romans. So let's look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That first phrase, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Paul is not making a case for this. Paul is assuming this. Paul is assuming that Christians, reading the book of Romans, all hold to a literal Adam. We all know that sin came into the world through one man. He's not arguing the case. He's just stating a fact that we all assume. Paul, the most prolific author of the entire New Testament, is assuming Christians reading this believe in a literal Adam and that through that literal Adam, sin entered the world, that God's creation is exposed to the debilitating effects of the fall of man because 
Adam sinned. That's where he starts off. The next phrase he goes into in verse 12 is, and death through sin. What came with sin? Death. Death always follows after sin. Always. The wages of sin is always death. The consequence of sin is always death. And it's been that way since the beginning. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord, took, the Lord God took the man, which is just Adam, Eve's not around yet, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death is always associated with sin. Death always follows sin. Now, since Paul brought it up, we need to note something of worldview significance here in verse 12. When did the presence of death first appear? After Adam sinned. So that's the timeline. So then how can Darwinian evolution be concurrent or compatible with the Christian scriptures? It cannot in any way because Darwinian evolution presupposes billions of years of death before you ever get to a being called a human. You have nothing but billions of years of blood, sweat, tears, tooth, and claw before you ever get to a human. But the Bible says that there can be no death before sin. So therefore, it is utterly incompatible with the Christian scriptures to hold to Darwinian evolution. If How can 512 be true if there were billions of years of death before Adam was even made, before he ever reached the top of the Darwinian evolution food chain? It's incompatible with the scriptures. There is no death before Adam sinned, much less before Adam existed. So you may be able to believe in an old earth, but you can't believe a biblical Christian and hold to a Darwinian old earth because Paul in this passage is going to connect a literal Adam and sin following or death following his sin to our very salvation. So this is a salvation issue that Paul is going to be addressing here in Romans 5. And verse 12 continues on. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, so the death brought into the world by Adam's sin spread to everyone. Why? Because all sinned. Wait, wait, I wasn't there. You weren't there. So how is Romans saying that we all sinned? I wasn't in the garden when the snake slithered up to Eve and deceived her and then she gave the fruit to Adam. I wasn't there for any of that. So how can Paul say that we all sinned? Before we answer that, let me give you an illustration of this. The Puritans, when they were teaching elementary school to their kids in the 1600s and 1700s, they developed this thing called the New England Primer to teach their kids the alphabet. Now, we teach kids the alphabet in kind of a, a fun way. A is for apples. B is for ball. C is for cat. All the way down like to F is for fun. Theirs was a little different. I'm going to start with B. B, the life to mend this book, attend. See, the cat doth play and after flay. And it's a picture of a cat killing a mouse. So just get a hold of that. D, the dog will bite the thief at night. E, an eagle's flight is out of fight. And F is my far the favorite. And if you teach in schools, this is your favorite. 
F, the idle fool is whipped at school. That's how they taught on the alphabet. But A, so the first letter that they learn in school is A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's what they taught their kids, that in Adam's fall, we sinned all because they understood the reality that God, in his divine sovereignty, looked at Adam as a representative of the entirety of the human race, that he was the representative, that God dealt with humanity in the garden federally as one unit. Now, if you say, I didn't choose Adam to be my representative, well, you're in luck. No democratic republic was ever invented until 1776. So you didn't get a vote. That's how God decided to do it in the garden. Or if you're saying, I would choose a better choice than that. So let's rewind. You would choose a better choice to represent humanity in the garden than the impeccable and fallible creator of the universe. Or that you yourself would be a better choice in the garden than what God chose as himself, the impeccable and fallible creator of the universe. No, humanity has never been more perfectly represented than we were in the garden. Absolutely. Is God free? Now you have this quiz question. Is God free to interact with humanity federally whenever he wants to? Yes, he is. Because he is the sovereign creator of the universe. So if God says in Adam's fall, we sinned all, then that is what is true. And he is free to do so. He's free to act towards us collectively in the garden and individually now. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. David knew this and was well aware of this in Psalm 51 verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David said, I was, I was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. So there's your answer to being born sinners. There's the answer to original sin. But even if we didn't have the scriptures, and praise God, we do have the scriptures. Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian, he said it would be our rational, reasonable obligation to invent a doctrine of original sin if it wasn't in the scriptures. Because if not, then how do we explain the corruption and the evil that we see around us? If human beings are truly born neutral, morally neutral, or even good, then where is the one good society? Where is the one society that's not completely overrun by sin, corruption, and evil? Where's the one society with no law enforcement, with no laws, with no rules, and everybody's peaceably interacting generously, generously with one another? Where is that? It's nowhere. So even if we didn't have it lined out in Scripture, we'd have to come up with something to explain what it is that we experience every single day because you would have to have at least a 50-50 chance that there is some society somewhere that's not completely overrun by evil and corruption. But that's not the case. 100% of societies are overrun with corruption and evil because 100% of people are all born sinful because in Adam's fall, we sinned all. In verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So a contrarian could say, well, you, you can't have sin if you don't have any rules. 
If sin is just rule breaking and you don't have the law of Moses, you don't have the Ten Commandments till 2,500 years later, then how can there be any sin? Well, Paul says, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Paul's saying, we've already been over this. Everybody's guilty whether or not they had a Bible. We talked about this in Romans 2, 14 through 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires because everybody has a conscience within them, no murderer wants to be murdered, no thief wants to be robbed, and no rapist wants to be raped. So therefore they have a law within them. By nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts. We don't mean to have the clarity to label correctly what that sin was or what that misdeed was. Nevertheless, it's still sin. We know that. In verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So you can say what you want about there being, well, there's still, there's no real presence of sin because there was no law to be violated. And you can say that, but then you have to know that everybody from Adam to Moses died. And we know, as we've already established, that death follows sin. So if everybody's dying between Adam and Moses, then that means between the Garden of Eden and Mount Sinai, those 2,500 years, death still reigned and they were still sinners. And because they died, it proved them to be sinners. Even though they don't sin in the likeness of Adam, what it says, we weren't sinning even now. We don't sin in the exact likeness of Adam because you and I don't have direct, audible, face-to-face revelation from God. Adam heard from the mouth of God, do not eat from that tree. We don't get that. We have a Bible, so we do have revelation of God, but not direct, even though we're not sinning exactly like him. And there have been plenty of people who have no written or spoken revelation of God. We already gone over this in Romans 1, 18 through 32, that all men know that God exists, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that's why Paul has to put this doctrine of original sin in chapter five, not way back in chapter one, because we couldn't swallow it in chapter one. We needed it here after we've already kind of understood this idea of imputation of Christ's righteousness being put onto me. And I'm like, okay, I like that idea. Well, let's go back to the reverse of it. You needed that because Adam's sin was put onto you. And we couldn't handle that until we get through Romans five and a half. In verse 14b, it says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, you see, that's interesting that Adam was a type of Christ. See, typology is a, is a New Testament principle. Well, it's a biblical principle that there are things that exist before God, be they people or institutions, that are a type or a foreshadowing of Christ, that they show us what Christ will be like before he comes. Joseph, he's a type of Christ, right? Isn't he killed or effectually killed by his own kinsmen, specifically his brother Judah? And then when the world is about to be obliterated by a famine, that death is coming, where do they go? They go to the one who sits at the right hand of the sovereign of the land, Joseph, in order to receive the bread of life. So Joseph is a type of Christ. David, the lowly shepherd from Bethlehem, who comes and obliterates sin that's oppressing 
God's people in the form of a nine foot tall giant Samson. He's also a type of Christ that he has at that scene where he kills a thousand men with the the jawbone of a donkey, takes a symbol of death at the place of death, Ramoth Lehi, to conquer death, just like Jesus took a symbol of death, the cross at a place of death, Golgotha, to conquer death forever. We see typology in the goats of the atonement in Leviticus 16, that one goat is slaughtered and its blood spilled all over the mercy seat. The second goat, sins are confessed over and it's cast out. Our sins are removed and paid for by one in Christ. We also see the bronze serpent. Remember that story from Numbers 21, where there's, there's poisonous snakes going through all the land. They're getting bit. And what does God say? Raise up on a standard an image of death and look at that when you get bit by death and you will be saved from death. Jesus brings that up in John 3. That was a type of Christ. So what Paul's saying is that Adam is a type of Christ, but he's a unique type of Christ. He's the only one that fits in this kind of category of God allowing one to represent all of his people. The only one who does that is Jesus Christ that Adam is the kingdom representative, the appointed head of all of humanity, but he failed in that. And we need Christ to be the appointed head of the new humanity, the redeemed humanity. Therefore, there are only two types of people in the whole world, those who are still in Adam and those who are now in Christ. The old humanity and the new humanity. Now, what Paul does here now, you probably have a paragraph change in your Bible from verse 14 to verse 15, is we're transitioning into the meat of the section of this whole concept. What Paul's going to do, he's going to show five times the ways that Adam's works and Christ's works contrast each other. He's going to ping pong back and forth between the differences of the two, but making clear to us that both of them served as covenantal heads of humanity, Adam of the first, Christ of the last. Let's look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. There's a lot in that verse, and we need to break it up into pieces. Look at the first section. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Well, what is the free gift? What is that? Well, if you skip ahead to the end of chapter 23, you know that the free gift is eternal life. That's what the free gift is. It's the gift of having all of your sins forgiven and Christ's righteousness robed around you so that you could stand before God and he can declare you righteous, righteous enough to enter into heaven because of Christ's works, not yours. And that's given to you by faith in Jesus. That's the free gift. That's what he's talking about there. And it must be free because what did we learn about ourselves last week in 5, 1 through 11? That we were godless, helpless sinners who were enemies of the one true God. Therefore, we could have never have earned it. It had to be a free gift. So that's the free gift. Well, what's the trespass? What's the trespass here? If it's not like it, well, that's Adam's sin in the garden. That's the, the eating of the apple. But then I know that after reading and talking about Adam for so long, then we're like, wait a minute. I know the story. Eve ate it first and then gave it to him. Why is the hook in Adam's mouth? It wasn't him. It was her. She did it. Yeah, but Adam was standing right there. Let me read you Genesis 3, verse 6. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she, meaning Eve, took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So did God restate the rules of the garden when he created Eve? No. He gave them to Adam And Adam was to instruct Eve and then the rest of the human race. Didn't re-give him. He was the kingdom representative. Now, in this scene, is it loving your wife like Christ loved the church to watch the devil himself whisper lies about God into your wife's ears? Is that sacrificial love? Is that laying down your life like Jesus did for your bride? You got to ask your question, why did he even lead her to hanging around there in the first place? There's two people in a massive garden. Go somewhere else. You didn't even need to be near there. And then when the snake slithers up, you're going to go ahead and let him contradict the word of God to your most precious loved one and just let it happen. Sit there and go, I bet she figures it out. I'm not going to step in between the embodiment of evil and my flesh and blood. No, Adam is guilty. Adam is guilty through and through. Eve's not innocent, but Adam is ultimately responsible for that. He had a unique leadership role that Eve did not have. And we know that because in this passage, it keeps talking about the one man's trespass. He doesn't go back to the man and the woman's trespass. Something about Adam as a representative role, as a leader, was different than that of Eve. Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. Adam knew what he was doing was wrong, and he deliberately disobeyed the command of God that he got from the mouth of God. And verse 15 continues, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. So look at that verse. It sounds kind of convoluted, but listen to it like this. If we can be sure that Adam's sinful action guaranteed death for all of us, we're all going to physically die. If we could be sure of that, then Paul says we can be much more sure of eternal life if we have stepped into the grace of God by receiving that free gift. We can be more sure of our eternity than we are of our own death. What Paul's saying in this verse, that the grace of God has brought about a gracious gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, and it's more secure than the fact is that you're going to die. That's because the free gift is based on God's grace and the consequences of the trespass are based on God's justice. That's why Paul says they're not like each other. The free gift is not like the trespass. But for those who refuse to accept this offer of the free gift of eternal life, you can be sure that you will receive death unending in hell. Death is batting a thousand Every single person who's ever died in unrepentance, death always gets the strikeout. Death always wins against the unrepentant. But to those who have humbly received this gift, just taken it from God as it's being given 
as a free gift, those people have no rationale whatsoever for fear. No rationale whatsoever for unsurety or insecurity. Paul says much more. If you can count on God to follow through in punishing sinners, then you can count on him even more for him to follow through on saving those who have repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. In verse 16, he goes on, and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So not only are the actions of the first Adam and the last Adam, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is, not only are the actions of the first Adam and the last Adam different, the results, the consequences of those actions are different. That's what he says in verse 16. The first Adam's action brought condemnation and only condemnation. The second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, his actions brought justification. When the fate of humanity was left in our hands, all we could somehow muster was earning the condemnation of God. But when the fate of humanity is taken out of our hands and placed into the Son of God's hands, then the result is justification for all those who believe. When the fate of humanity, you think about the garden, we have these two garden scenes. The first Adam is in a perfect garden, a flawless garden. And when he's confronted with temptation, he says, not your will, but my will be done. But the second Adam when he's in a very marred garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and he's confronted with temptation, he says, not my will, but your will be done. The first Adam, when he's tempted in this area of food and the serpent says, take and eat, he does so to the condemnation of all of us. But the last Adam in the Lord's Supper in the upper room, he says to the disciples, take and eat, as a symbol of my salvation for you. He's completely undone everything that Adam has messed up. Luther said, Martin Luther said of this reality in verse 16, the figure of Adam's transgression is in us, for we die just as though we had sinned as he did. But the figure of Christ is in us too, for we live just as though we had fulfilled all righteousness as he did. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So now we have this juxtaposition of reigning, Adam's sins, and then death reigns. Jesus Christ accomplishes the one righteous action, and now we reign in life. It's better that he didn't just undo Adam. He improved upon Adam. As certain as death is for all people on planet earth, reigning with Christ eternally is more certain for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. When the apostle John is being shown this vision of heaven and he's trying to write down all that he can comprehend in the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse five, he writes this. And night will be no more, meaning in heaven, night will be no more. They, the people in heaven, will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever 
and ever. That's what he's saying about you and me. We will reign forever and ever. And Paul said this already. We studied 2 Timothy months ago. But he says, this is 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We reign with Christ because Christ reigns and we're in him. That's the, that's the position of a Christian. You are in Christ. Therefore, verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There's the question. That's the question that started our whole conversation in this paragraph, right? How can one guy's action pay for everybody? Well, one guy's action can pay for everybody because one guy's sin corrupted everybody. This is how God has seen fit to do it. Imagine it like this, like a diamond shape. Adam's at the top of the diamond. Everything is at a point and he sins and it blows it out. Now sin reigns. There's sinners sinning everywhere. Millions of sinners sinning everywhere. And the diamond gets wider. And at the width of the diamond, that's where Jesus comes in. When sin and unrighteousness and evil is reigning, he comes in and he brings it back down to a point. And that point is fixated upon him. And the entirety of that diamond can rest upon the person and work of Jesus Christ because he is strong enough to hold it up. Adam wasn't even strong enough to sit on top of it. That's what has happened. That's how it can happen. Look at verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam committed one sin as a representative of humanity and death and sin and evil spread to all people. And Jesus came in at that moment and is able to undo all of it. Able to undo and bring it all back to a point. Adam lit a match and burned the entire city down. Jesus came in to that burned rubble that you and I are, the bricks and the beams, and he put it all back together. He's the only one adequate enough to put it all back together. See, what we needed was a righteous representative to stand in our place before God because we're sinners from sinners. We can say like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. That's us. We needed somebody to stand in our place. And Adam was our best shot as a human doing it and making it happen the first time, and he blew it. And you and I wouldn't have done any better in his shoes. But praise be to God that he did not withhold from us the one being who could perfectly represent all who will believe. That God created a way to bring about this man, capital M, this God-man, Jesus Christ, by circumventing Adam. You ever wonder why it's so significant that Jesus had to be born of a virgin because God had to go around Adam because the savior can't have original sin. That's why the promise in Genesis three fifteen is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, not the seed of Adam seed of the woman. So God creates this way so that Christ can succeed and does succeed where Adam failed. Now the law came in verse 20 to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded 
all the more. The law came in to increase the trespass. That's true on certain levels. It's certainly true that when the law, when you see the rules, you see how short you're falling of them. But also, when was the last time you ever walked past a sign that said, wet paint, do not touch, and you didn't touch it? You always touch it. I always touch it. How wet is that paint? Because I saw a rule, and I go, yeah, I think I need to break that. So where the law comes in, sin increases to an extent that it speaks to our heart and we are sinful, but also that it shines a light on all of our actions, and we're very clear as to what is sin now. It's like turning in your homework. It was just as wrong before the teacher got it and bled all over it with her red pen. But now when she does that, now you can get the test back and go, yep, they were all wrong. But it was wrong before you put it in there. That's why I always hated going to seventh grade and eighth grade when they started putting the answers in the back of the book for math. I used to be able to turn my homework in on Friday and have a great weekend. And then come home, come back on Monday and get my life ruined by getting that paper back. But no, I can just go look at the answers in the back of the book and go, yeah, got number one wrong, got number two wrong, got number three wrong. So it just shined more light on my already existing falling short. That's what he's saying in this passage. But you can't out the grace of God because where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sin wasn't in decline when Jesus came around. And is it in decline now? When you watch the news, are you like, man, it's a great day to be an American. You watch the news and you just see sin increasing. But nevertheless, people are getting saved. Nevertheless, grace is abounding all the more. Even in countries where Christianity is being punished by the sword, people are coming to Christ. Because where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, verse 21, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin may reign in causing us all to die. Eventually, my heart's going to stop. Eventually, your heart's going to stop. Sin may reign in that. But grace reigns how? In verse 21, all the more. Grace reigns all the more in the souls of the redeemed who have eternal life because they've placed their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus Christ. See, doesn't this whole section work to further secure us in our justification that we can be secure because of God explaining it more to us that Adam's sin was universally applied to all people everywhere in all time guaranteeing their death but Christ's righteous act on the cross is much more effective in securing eternal life for his elect forever the believer in Jesus Christ can be more secure in eternal life than they are sure that they're going to die one day. Our dependence upon Jesus is exhaustive. Our obligations to him are infinite, and it is only through his righteousness and not a shred of our own merit that we can be saved. To the fall of man of which we are all guilty was like a building being imploded. You ever seen that? It gets imploded and all the bricks, the beams, the mortar all falls in on itself. And there is only one who is fit enough to approach the deconstruction site and begin reassembling the bricks 
and the beams and all the pieces back together. And even better, that he can take the ruins, this Jesus, the ruins that you and I are, you and I are the bricks, we are the beams, and start putting it back together into a holy temple within which the Holy Spirit dwells. Let me read to you from Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here's our building imagery. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's us. That's what justification is. Now let's apply ourselves this week to understanding biblically our sin and also understanding biblically our Savior who justifies us. Sometimes our application is just to know God more fully. And that's what we're left with at the end of chapter five. That's what we need to be doing. How do I know God more fully and know what he's done for me more fully and then just hit my face in worship, thanking for him, what he did on my behalf that I did not do and could never earn. Let's pray. To find out more, visit us at tombaubible.church.